0: Welcome to the Weekend Message from Mariner's Church in Huntington Beach, California. Whether you are listening across the street or across the globe, we hope you'll find encouragement for your daily life through this podcast. All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 12. Uh, We'll be there in a second. And um, let me ask you this question. Marriage, marriage. Is marriage a contract or is it a covenant? Is marriage a contract, or is it a covenant? I'm not going to have you answer because I have an answer, and if you give the wrong answer, you're going to feel lame. So, But when Julie and I stood up uh, and exchanged vows just not all that long ago, when we did that, um, we got up, and during the vow part, if you remember your vows, they go, you know, something like this. You know, I take Julie to be my lawful wedded wife, to have and to hold in sickness and in health, in adversity and prosperity, uh, to honor, to cherish, to love, until death do us part. And you'll notice that in that statement, it is an unconditional statement. There are no conditions. I will love you if, I will cherish you if, you know, I will stay with you in sickness if, Uh, The idea, really, of a marriage vow is you're making this unconditional commitment to this other person. And an unconditional commitment in a relationship is a covenant. Now, a contract is different. And there are people who get married, and they go into marriage with prenups, right? And when they go in with a prenup, and I'm not saying if you did, that's fine. That's, That's not really the big point here. But when you go in with with a prenuptial agreement and you say, well, I'm bringing some stuff into this relationship, and I want to protect my stuff in case the relationship doesn't work out, where is the priority? Is the priority on the relationship or the stuff? Stuff, right? It's on the stuff. You're saying, listen, I want this relationship to work, but the real important thing here is that the stuff gets protected or the deal gets protected, and that is contract thinking. And in some ways, there's nothing wrong with contract thinking. In certain relationships, you want contract thinking. So, for instance, when I signed with a real estate agent to sell my house, you know, I want us to be friends and all, but we are pretty much coming together to get a deal done to protect my stuff, and it's a contract. So you've got to do this, and I will do this, and we're both sort of swearing ourselves to do our part to get this deal done. Uh, When you get hired at a place... You may be working with friends, you may want friendships, but you're gonna hire some, you know, you're gonna sign some kind of contract that if I do this work, I get paid this amount. Contracts are real good on this. If you were to enter into a business venture with someone, you know, you'd probably be foolish not to sign some kind of contract because the focus is on building a business or getting something done or, you know, making some stuff happen. So contracts aren't bad things, but they aren't appropriate in everything. So they're not appropriate in a marriage because in a marriage, what you're saying is the relationship is everything. It's a relationship. It's not the stuff. It's not the deal even. It's the relationship. It's my commitment to you, an uncon- uh, unconditional commitment. Well, one of the reasons that Jesus hates religion is because religion very often makes our relationship with God into a contract And uh, Jesus hates that. It was rampant in his day. Paul hates it so much, and we're going to look at something in a little bit, that he actually swears about it. He he curses, and you're going to see that in a second. If you've ever wondered if there's really a swear word in the Bible, there really is a swear word in the Bible, and we're going to look at it today. And you're all thinking, oh, I know this. It's ass, because that's what they call donkeys in the King James Version. It is not ass, okay? So I just want to tell you, it's, it's the next step higher than that, okay? So we're going to look at that in a second. If, if nothing else, you'll stick with me to hear the swear word, I'm sure. Okay, so the deal is, is that you have contracts and you have covenants, and very often in our relationship with God, we can slip into contract mentality. And let me tell you how I have done this, how Julie and I have done it. We've done it a lot, but I'll just give you a great illustration of it. Uh, Years ago, when we were still at Mariners, and this was back in the uh, late 80s, early 90s, Julie and I felt called to go up to Seattle to plant a church. And we had two young boys at that time, and we didn't really think that much about it, but we were leaving a ministry here at Mariners that had an incredibly good children's ministry. And we went up to start a church that had no children's ministry. And, uh, and so anyway, we were there for about five years, five or six years, and it was a great experience. We loved being up there. We felt like we had honored God's call and done what he had asked us to do. Uh, but our boys really struggled because there was not a good children's ministry ever while we were there. And so that had an impact on sort of how they felt about God and certainly how they felt about church. Well, then we moved to South Carolina basically to start another new church, a baby church. And we had just gotten to the place where I was at in Seattle where we had sort of built a children's ministry, and there was a youth ministry that was starting because now my boys were moving into youth. And we went to a church that had no youth ministry. And, but we felt like we were called to it. We felt like we were doing what God asked us to do, and Julie and I wanted to faithfully obey, so we moved all the way across the country to South Carolina, and our kids went into like a non-existent youth ministry. And so again, they sort of took the brunt of not having peers and not having other adults in their life that would make Christianity exciting and fun and meaningful. And sure enough, as we got into the teenage years, uh, both of our boys started to rebel in a major way. And I'm not here to say that I know they wouldn't have rebelled if we had not made these choices, but one of the ramifications is that they had nobody around them that were peers and no other adults in their life that really made Christianity kind of a cool thing and, and another place for them to have this positive reinforcement. So anyway, as our boys, and if you've had, if you've had teenage kids that have rebelled, uh, it is for me it was the hardest thing I've ever gone through, ever, is to watch my boys push us away, push away our values, push away Jesus, and they did it in a hard way. And so we sort of bruised through that period of time And eventually, I came to the place of saying to God, this is not fair. Julie and I and our family have tried to faithfully follow what you've asked us to do. We feel like we've responded to the call that you made, that we risked things, that we became uncomfortable, that we moved out of a place where we had friends and family and a stable situation to a place that wasn't. We feel like we did this for you, God, And why have you not come through with our kids? It's not like we haven't prayed about it. We prayed and we prayed and we prayed and we prayed. We did, you know, it was like fasting, everything we could think of. And eventually, I remember this thought coming into my mind of just saying, I did my part, God, and you didn't do your part. You did not come through for me, and I came through for you. And you hear the story and you go, well, I can sort of understand that. But I'll tell you that that thought that I had during that period in our life is deadly to our relationship with God. It is deadly. It is so far off how a relationship actually works with God because I was thinking contract mentality. I lived up to my part of the bargain. I have this deal with my boys that needs to go a certain way. And God, your job is to come through and make sure that happens. And whether you do it with kids that are sort of going haywire, or you do it in this way where you say, I give money, now God, it's your job to bless me. I mean, right? Aren't you supposed to give me prosperity if I'm generous with my money? Or you think, I have integrity at work, I even sort of miss up on some deals sometimes because I'm going to be honest and straightforward, and I'm going to do it the way Jesus would want to do it. So God, your job is to bless me at my work and to give me a great career, right? That's your job. Uh, Or you think, you know, in any other area, you go to school and you think, listen, I'm honest, I don't cheat on tests, I work really hard, I study, I'm doing my part. God, your job is to make sure that I'm a successful student. And you can go all the way through and look at places where we feel like, if I do my part, God, you've got to do your part, right? I mean, you're obligated to follow through on your part. And the problem with this is that this is contract thinking, and nowhere in the Bible do we ever see the word contract when it comes to our relationship with God. Nowhere. There is not one time where contract is used to describe our relationship with God. So here's what we think of when we think of a contract mentality, just so that we're clear about what we're talking about. In a contract mentality, I believe that I initiate, and it's God's job to respond. So I'm going to do my part, and God, now you need to do your part. And one of the ways that you know you're falling into contract mentality is when uh, you have an entitlement attitude. I am entitled to this. And I believe we were entitled to have godly kids. And that was God's part to come through. Anytime you feel entitled, I am entitled to prosperity. I am entitled to a good career. I am entitled to a marriage that is working because I was pure and I do all my stuff to make my marriage as good as possible. Whenever you feel entitled, you can know that you're working on a contract with God. I'm doing my part. Now, God, you need to do your part. And the other thing that happens is when we do contract mentality kind of thinking is that everything becomes conditioned. I am conditioned, uh, conditional. It's a conditional thing that I'll do. Uh, If I come through, then uh, God needs to come through, or I don't need to come through anymore. Or if I don't come through, and so many people believe this about God, If I don't come through, if I've made a mess of my life, if I've sinned it up, if I'm doing this, and all these things start crashing down on my head, our belief is, well, God wasn't really obligated to love me because I let down on my part of the contract. There was nothing for him to come through on because I messed up so much. Uh, There's a story. I believe that this is true. I I heard it a while back, and it was confirmed. Um, But there was a young guy who was... uh, raised in sort of a wealthy home and his aunt contracted cancer and he was at the time planning on going into the ministry and he loved his aunt and so he prayed and he prayed and he prayed and he prayed and he prayed for his aunt totally believing that God would heal her and eventually his aunt died and he became so disillusioned about that that he walked away from God and in fact became very hostile for God and the church and Christianity. And uh, that's a story about Ted Turner. And it's interesting because he justified walking away from God. And incidentally, I was just reading about him. He is starting to come back to God again. If you read some of the latest stuff about Ted Turner, he's starting to come back at his age. But during that time, he justified it and he said, hey, God and I had a bargain and God didn't come through. So I felt totally justified in walking away from God because This relationship is conditional. Contracts are conditional. But covenants aren't. And what I want to do is spend a little time now talking about covenants, the way that God has actually set it up, because it's sort of foreign to the way we usually think. And uh, covenants come through in the Bible, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. There are covenants of an arrangement of how we interact with God. So again, if you have your Bibles, uh, I told you Genesis 12, you're close to where you need to be. It's actually Genesis 15, sorry. Go over to Genesis 15. But the first covenant is not with Abraham. The first covenant was with, anybody want to take a guess? You, little before that, flood the world... <laughs> Noah, good. And uh, remember, so God flooded the world, and he said, I'm going to make a covenant with you that I won't destroy the world again. And he gave Noah a sign for the covenant, and the sign was the rainbow. So every time you see a rainbow, it's like God's saying, I won't destroy the world with water again. So, does anybody hear that noise? Okay, that's not just me. Yeah, thanks, God. I appreciate it. It's just in my head, this high-pitched noise. Okay. Um, anyway, Uh, And then he comes to Abraham, and he says, Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of a great nation when he's childless, and I'm going to give you an incredible land. And he said, and I'm going to give you a sign for this covenant, and that sign was, say it, circumcision, right? Circumcision. And Abraham said, God, I kind of wanted Noah's sign, not that sign, you know. Like, who wants circumcision as the sign? Okay, but he and so God gives a sign. He says that's going to just show you again that I'm in. I'm committed to this kind of a thing. And so what we read is in uh, chapter 15, uh, God is going to come to Abraham, Abram. At this point, his name is later changed to Abraham. He's going to come to Abraham and he's saying, I'm making a covenant with you. And I want to point out something that is just fascinating about this covenant that God makes with Abraham. So it says, But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? He's talking about the land. So the Lord said to him, Bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Then the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot and a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. All right, uh, and on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram and said, to your descendants, I give this land. Okay, so this is the covenant that God makes with Abram. And you'll notice that what happens is that God says, all right, we're going to make kind of a deal. We're going to kind of sign a, a pact on this kind of a thing. And this was actually a way that treaties were done in the Old Testament. And what they would do is they'd take, as you can see, animals, and the larger animals they'd actually cut in half, and they'd put them apart from each other, making kind of a pathway in between these bloody carcasses. And the idea is that if two people were going to swear to some kind of agreement, a treaty, or some kind of a deal, They would walk through the carcasses, and by doing that, they would basically be be saying, as I walk through this, what I'm committing to you is if I don't follow through on my part, may what has happened to these animals happen to me. May I be slaughtered. May I be cut in half. May I be destroyed. That's That's how much I'm committing to follow through on this arrangement, this contract that we're making. So this was a way of making contracts. And it looks like what we're saying here is, oh my gosh, this is a contract. This is going to be a contract between God and Abram. But you'll notice what happens is after the animals are cut in half, Abram goes into a deep sleep, right? And it says that he's afraid or terrorized. And you know what that's a sign of? That's a sign that God's showing up. And uh, very often in the Old Testament and the New Testament, when God reveals himself in full glory or in partial glory, uh, the response is fear is pulling back. We see it again and again, and it happens to Abram in this time as he feels this amazing awe of God coming into his life. And then it says that two things go through the carcasses, and it's a fire pot, and it's a blazing torch. Now, what do you think the fire pot, who does the fire pot and the blazing torch represent, do you think? What would be your guess? There's two people it could be, God, Abram. It represents God. God is almost always represented by fire in some way. And you see that those things come through the carcasses. Does Abraham ever come through the carcasses? Answer is, no, he doesn't. It's only God. And this is the most amazing thing. God comes through and he says, I swear on myself. I swear on my own destruction that you can count on what I am telling you, that I'm going to give you a land. That's how much I swear by it. And almost as if Abraham's like, okay, well, then I'll do it too. God says, no, 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 you don't do it. Because I know you're not going to come through. I know that you're going to let down on them. I know that you can't perfectly follow this. No, I will do it alone. I will initiate this. I will swear on myself because I know I can come through, and I will come through, but you're not going to. And it moves from contract to covenant. Because in covenant, God always initiates. And then human beings are able to respond. But in this case, God doesn't say, yeah, respond by coming through the carcasses, Abraham, because he says, no, 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 that would not be good because you won't follow through perfectly. Here's what I want you to do, Abraham. I just want you to believe that I will come through. That's all I want. I want you to believe that I will come through. And if you read, and for some of you, this will be a phrase that you're aware of, and it's in this chapter, actually. We didn't read it. But it says, and God and Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. In other words, all God said is, just believe me, just believe me, and you will respond in the right way. I will do the action. You believe me. And it's really an amazing thing. And we know later on that Abraham sort of tested in this, right? Because God tells him to take his son Isaac and take him up on a mountain. And what is he going to do to Isaac? He's going to sacrifice him. And Abram believes God so much that he says, you know what, I'd even sacrifice my son for you. That's how much I believe in what you're telling me. And God says, well done. Well done. You're responding exactly what, the way that I'd like is by believing me. You're responding in belief. And so one of the things that we know about covenant is God always initiates, and our response is always to believe. That's the way that it works. Let me give you another illustration of this. Uh, It happens uh, about 400, well, more than 400 years later. And this is now with a different group of people, and Moses, and you know the story of Exodus, and you have Jews that have been in captivity now for 400 years. They are not a nation really anymore. They're just a group of slaves. And God comes to them. He initiates... He comes to them, he rescues them, he brings the plagues on Egypt, he does the Passover thing, he takes them out of Egypt, they come to the Red Sea, he gets them through the Red Sea, he guides them by a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night, he takes them into the desert, he feeds them miraculously every morning, he takes them up to Mount Sinai, and through all of this process, it's all God's initiation all the people have done is just sort of followed along. God has initiated every single step along the way. And now Abraham, go- or rather Moses goes up on the mountain because God is going to establish a new covenant with Moses and the people. And so let's read this. This is in Exodus chapter 19, and it says this. Uh, why don't you read it with me? It says, Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation." These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Okay, so now a new covenant is being arranged, and it's because the people are in a totally different place. So here's what you need to understand. A lot of times when we look at the law in the Old Testament, because it was so specific and it seems so hard to keep, we think God is sort of of cursing the people, maybe sort of saying, listen, you're going to get heaven on the back end, so for now your life's going to be miserable trying to keep my law. That's sometimes the way we see it. That's not the way God meant it at all. Here's what he's thinking. You're a group of people for 400 years. You have been slaves. You have no idea of how to interact with each other. You have no way of how to be a people together, or being a community where you're not hurting each other constantly. Let me in my grace and my love for you give you a law give you a way to interact with each other, give you a way to interact with me. This was not God being petty or God being harsh. This was God saying, this is exactly what you need. Let me give you this law so that you can govern your life in a way that will bring life to you. So God initiates. He initiates by rescuing him from Egypt, carrying him on eagle's wings, it says. And then he initiates by saying, let me give you what you need the most. A law, a law to live by. And he says these things. He said, here's a couple of things that will happen if you follow the law, if you do the things, if you believe me and try to hold on to this law. One is you'll become my special possession. That was a very interesting term. Back in the Old Testament days, in the days of kings, uh, the, the way that it worked is a king owned everything in his realm. In other words, he owned the things that were in the castle. He owned the things that weren't in the castle. He owned everything. He had the ability to have it all. And so in here what God is pictured as is, is a king and the idea here is well king the king owns everything in the earth because he's made it. But there are special possessions and the special posi- uh, special possessions that people would have known were the things that God actually brought in to his household, the things he wanted close to him. So, you know, he might look at, you know, a candelabra and say, "Wow. You know, that's mine even though John Smith has it down the road. I, you know, but I like that so much, I'm going to bring that into my house because I want that to be around me more. And that's what he said for the Jewish people, is you're going to be my special possession. I own the whole world, but you're going to be my special possession that I'm going to draw especially close to me. And then he says you're going to be a kingdom of priests. In other words, you're going to be my representatives to the rest of the world. That's what a priest does. Is a priest connects God with people that you're going to be a kingdom of them. All of you are going to be priests. You're going to bring people to me. So here's what God says. God says, listen, I've initiated everything. I brought you out of slavery. I've given you this incredible law. Your response is to believe me. Believe me when I tell you the law is good. Now, how would you show God that you believed the law was good? You would do it, right? That's how you believe." Lip service doesn't do a great thing. You actually do it. Now, you look at this and you go, well, this sounds like a lot like a contract. God has done his part. We need to do our part. It's an if-then kind of a thing. Let me just ask you this question. How did the Jews do it, keeping the law in the Old Testament, for those of you that know? Did they do good or bad? Bad. They did bad. When Jesus came as the Messiah, who did he first come to? He came to the Jews. God's commitment to the Jews was unconditional. They did not come through on following the law. Just like Abraham couldn't have come through, so God said, well, you're not walking through those carcasses because there's no way you're coming through. You are frail and human, and you're not going to come through. And my commitment to you is unconditional, God says. And it happens also with the Jews. Jesus comes to the Jews. He says, the Messiah has come to give you salvation, and you didn't even follow through on everything you said. Now, you missed out on a bunch of blessing because you didn't, but my commitment to you is unconditional. And that is a covenant now. Now we're talking about a covenant, because a covenant is where God initiates and I respond, and God says, it's unconditional on my side. It is not up to you responding well. I will still love you. I will still be committed to you. All right, so last thing I want to do is fast forward into the New Testament because you guys are still wondering where Paul swears. And I want to show that to you because we can't quit until we show that. By the time Jesus came and the time that Paul was alive, religion had become very contractual. So in other words, it was if you do this, God will do this. And if God does this, you better do this or God won't love you anymore. And so that was sort of the thinking. And there was a lot of entitlement from people that felt like they kept the law or did God's part really well. And so even one of the biggest ironies is by the time uh, Paul comes along, by the time Jesus is here, circumcision, which was, remember, it was a sign of what? Of contract or covenant? Circumcision. Covenant. You know what it had become by Paul's time? It was a contract. In other words, you better get circumcised or you will not get any of God's blessing. It's the circumcised that get blessed. And so Paul comes to Jesus, or or rather, uh, Paul comes into this environment, and he is totally caught up in this contract mentality. And we read about it in Philippians 3, 4 through 6. Uh, Paul says this, If others think they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, in other words, in this contract that we've set up with God, if anybody could feel good about it, I can feel good about the contract. And here's the reason why. Uh, uh, Circumcised on the eighth day, because circumcision is part of the contract, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, sort of a special tribe, A Hebrew of Hebrews. In other words, he comes to the cream of the crop as far as the Jewish people. In regard to the law of Pharisee, they were the people that really honored the law. As for zeal, persecuting the church. Anybody gets in the way of what we're trying to do here and I'll take them out. As for righteousness, uh, based on the law, faultless. What an amazing statement. Do you know that there was like 600 rules of the law? And he says, look at any of them. I'm faultless. I have nailed it. If I was Abraham, I could have walked through those carcasses because I would have kept it. That's what Paul is saying here. So you can see that he has sort of a lot that he feels like he's offering God. And what happens is that Paul sort of has come into this position of saying, it's a contract and I'm winning. I'm winning in this contract. I'm doing really well. And you can see that what it does is it pushes them into having this ego. It pushes them into... Uh, sort of comparing himself with other people. It allows him to feel like, I've got control. I'm controlling this situation. Even with God, I control it because I'm so good. And he comes in contact with this group of people who says, we don't do it by contract. We do it by covenant through Jesus, the Christians. And how does Paul first, this is Saul, so this is before his conversion. How does Saul respond to this group that's trying to do it by covenant? Huh? Do You guys know this story, what Saul tries to do? All right, we're going to turn to it because you're not playing with me enough. All right, so Acts chapter 9. So here's how Saul responds to it. Okay, this is what he does. It says, meanwhile, Saul was breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. Okay, so he does not take it well. He does not like covenant thinking. He went to the high priest, asked him for letters to the synagogue in Damascus. Basically, he wants to go there and he wants to bring Christians back in chains. We're going to kill him. We're going to wipe him out. We're going to destroy him. This is so threatening to me because here's the deal. If the game is being righteous, if the game is keeping the law, if the game is a contract, Paul is saying, I win. But if you do it this way, it's like you're changing the whole game. No way. We're not changing the game. It's contract, and I'm winning at contract. But what happens is, as Paul goes, you all know the story, he's knocked off his donkey and if we were going to swear, we know what we'd call it, knocked off the donkey, blinding light, he's on the ground, and Jesus says, what are you doing? Don't you understand? This is covenant, and I have come, and I have initiated, and I'm coming to you. And Paul, all of a sudden, light bulb goes on. It's like, oh, my gosh, I've been doing this totally wrong. It is not contract. It is covenant, and it's all about Jesus. And so he has to start changing what he does, and that's what we see in the rest of Philippians chapter 3. So Paul goes on to say this, But whatever was gained to me, in other words, after this transition in his mind, whatever was profit to me, whatever was gained to me, I consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things." I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and the participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death and so somehow attaining to resurrection from the dead. So here's, let me just say kind of quick how this falls out. Paul looks at it, and he says, I've been playing the wrong game. I've been living by contract, and I've been winning. So this is, I've thought, this is so great. And now all of a sudden, the game has changed. Have you ever played the hit game? You know the hit game? The hit game goes like this, is you you have a friend. You only play this game once, by the way. You have a friend, and you say, hey, let's play the hit game. Let's see who can hit the other person the softest. And you go, you know, the person who knows the game always tells the other person, you go first. And so when I was playing the hit game, I'd go up, and I, I barely touched him. I mean, it took me about three minutes to throw the hit and then pull it back because I just grazed the shirt. And I said, that's going to be hard to beat. And the guy said, it is hard to beat. And he wailed on my arm. Boom! And, and I was like, whoa! And he goes, I lost. And I was like, okay, well, <laughs> I, I don't like that game. I want to play a different game. And that's kind of what happens to Paul Harris. It's like the whole game has to change. Because he's, he's thought that winning at this game was the, was the goal. And what he realizes is winning at this game is lame. You don't want to win at this game. This game takes you out of the real game. And so here's the words he uses. He says, everything is lost, everything is worthless, everything is garbage. Okay, so here's your swear word. Uh, that word for garbage is so mildly translated in our Bibles, it almost loses total control of what it means. Uh, In in, uh, King James, back in the 1600s, they at least had the courage to translate it dung. But here's what it really means. It means street scum, and it has to do with what was in the streets of that day, with all of those animals walking around. And you can just picture what you might have walked in constantly. And the most derogatory, the most crude, vulgar way of saying it is the way that Paul says it here. So the word that you're thinking of in your head that you're wondering if I'm going to say in church, which I'm not, but you know the word, that is the word that Paul uses here. It is a vulgar word. It is a swear word. It is a way of describing what comes out of an animal and what you step in and what gets on your shoe. That's the word that he uses here because he is trying to use the most vulgar description of winning at the wrong game, of winning at contract, because what he says is it's all covenant. It's all the idea that God's initiated. So God's initiated by coming to me and Jesus, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That's initiation by God. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus died for us. The idea that we exchange our unrighteousness for Jesus's righteousness. The idea that we're given a living hope that will follow through all initiations by Jesus into our life. And all Paul says is my job is to believe that. My job is not to do. My job is to believe it, to react to that. And so he says, having a righteousness not of my own, but God's righteousness, having a power not of my own, but the Holy Spirit's power, I respond by believing. And that's the final thing that he says if you follow through uh, in the rest of Philippians. He says, not that I've already obtained all this, or I've already arrived at my goal But I press on to take hold for that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me, brothers and sisters. I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. And simply what he's saying is he's saying, now I understand. Jesus came to me when I wasn't looking for him, and he grabbed me. He held on to me. He gave me a chance. And Paul would say, and when I was in that, I just believed. I just believed that Jesus was the way. That's what I believed. And now my whole job is to grab back onto Jesus. It is not to focus on being righteous in my own strength or having the power I can muster up. That's not my job because that's the wrong game. That's contract thinking. My job is to grab onto Jesus in every part of my life, to walk with him as my best friend, to do everything I can to build this relationship and make it important. And as I do it, I step in to this covenant that God has for me that's unconditional, that's so far beyond how contract thinking works. And so I just want to ask you, What are you living in? Are you living in contract or covenant? Are you feeling like you have to do things to earn God's approval, to win him over, to get him to do the things you want him to do? That's contract thinking. Or are you saying, listen, I don't bring anything to this party. God has brought it all to me. And all I do is believe him. I just believe him. I just cling to Christ. I just hold on to him. This week as you're thinking, are you clinging to him? Are you spending time with him? Are you thinking about him? Are you knowing him more deeply? That's really what this is a call to. And as that happens, this power starts to come through you. God's righteousness comes into you. His strength comes over you. That's the way gospel works. Totally different than religion. Totally different than contract. I want to pray for you, so if you bow your head, and um, Tim, are you going to come up and finish us off with something too? Cool. All right, so let me pray, and I just want you to bow, and I just want you to think about something as as you're sort of looking down. It is so easy for all of us to fall into contract thinking. Right now, I want you to think, have you been doing that in any place in your life, of thinking of it's sort of a contract God blesses me as I do this part. Or if I do this, God needs to respond a certain way. And I just want to give you a second to identify that and let go of that. Because there's a better way. It is the way of the gospel. It is the way of covenant. It's the idea that God comes to us when we can't possibly come to Him. That everything that is good in in our lives is initiated by Him. That our response is simply to believe. Our response as Jesus comes to us and grabs onto us is simply to hold to him. If you've never done that, if you say, you know, I've never done that, I've never really grabbed onto Jesus, I've never understood it that way, your first step is to grab onto him now because he's he's reaching for you and he's grabbing onto you. And as you open your heart and your mind to that relationship and say, Jesus, I want you in my life. I want your sins to have paid for my sins. I want your righteousness and I'll trade you my unrighteousness. You can do that right now. You can do that. That's a personal thing between you and God. And for the rest of us, Jesus, we pray that you'd help us think in terms of covenant, not contract. Give us a sensitivity to turn away from contract thinking any time it comes up when we start feeling proud or we compare ourselves to other people or we feel entitled. Help us to identify that and say, no way. Help us just to turn and to believe you and to grab onto you and thank you so much for all that you've initiated in our lives. We will give you the glory and the credit with joy. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Mariners Church in Huntington Beach. For more information about Mariners, visit www.marinerschurch.org.